Welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we caught up with Ava Constantaris and Ted Ong from Lighthouse Reports, a nonprofit news organization based in the Netherlands. Ava is a data journalist specializing in building data journalism teams in the global south, and she is also data editor for Lighthouse Reports. Ted is a data scientist at Lighthouse Reports, specializing in machine learning and AI. Ava and Ted talked to us about a policy scorecard they developed investigating the vaccination of Europe's undocumented people. They explain how the story came about, along with the process of crowdsourcing the data and the criteria for developing the scorecard. This podcast is an edited version from datajournalism.com's live Discord chat held in November 2021. Now, before we kick off today's episode, don't forget that you can take the State of Data Journalism 2021 survey. You can do that by heading over to datajournalism.com survey. And you can also win a trip to attend the International Journalism Festival held in Perugia, Italy in April 2022. Or you can also win some Amazon gift cards. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Ava and Ted from Lighthouse Reports. Ava, Ted, welcome. Thanks again for coming on today. Thanks for having us, Tara. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. So let's start with how this investigation came together. You know, what led Lighthouse Reports to pursue this piece on looking at vaccination rates of undocumented people across Europe? And why did you opt for a scorecard? I think to get into that a little bit, more deeply, we, we need to go back a little bit. In Lighthouse Reports, actually, one of the newsrooms that was founded on was the Migration Newsroom. But one of the original missions of Lighthouse Reports was to improve the quality of migration reporting in Europe. And so as part of that, our reporters in our network had, had surfaced this issue that kept coming up in which politicians across Europe were realizing that kind of anti-immigration policies were kind of undermining public health, were undermining sort of social services overall, but they made for really good politics. So sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric was really popular. Um, It was playing well sort of, you know, in countries with the rise of populism. But at the same time, the governments were realizing that actually denying health care to undocumented people is pretty bad policy. Um, so what our reporters were asking us were, were basically, how is this playing out in real life? Um, so are governments actually taking care of the healthcare needs of undocumented people or not? Um, so that was kind of the, the kernel that the, the kernel of the investigation. And that, that was our starting point. And (laughs) I think I I have a longer list of the data we were not able to collect than what we were able to collect. So For example, governments make it very difficult to even estimate the number of undocumented people within the borders of any specific countries. So because we don't know how many undocumented people there are, we also don't know how many undocumented people are getting vaccinated. We don't know how many are being hospitalized. And we don't even know something as basic as how many undocumented people have died uh, during the pandemic. So 
knowing that those were kind of our limitations on the data that we that we wouldn't be able to collect, our question from our network was really, well, what data are we able to collect that would inform migration reporting and that would be meaningful to newsrooms? And that's what led us to to this policy scorecard idea. So what policies are governments proposing um, in terms of the COVID-19 vaccination and are undocumented people included in those policies? Can you just tell us about the criteria for these scorecards? Like, how did you go about picking this? And, you know, did you rely on academics for this research? Yeah, actually, we didn't. We didn't rely on academics at all. <laughs> um, so what we did when we tried to figure out what should be included in the scorecard, the first thing we did was we sat down with um, PICM, which is the Platform for International Cooperation on Undocumented Migrants, and mostly with Alina Smith there. And this is, this is basically an umbrella organization that advocates for undocumented people. And what we wanted to find out from them is basically what are the barriers to undocumented people for getting vaccinated and how do we measure those barriers? Um, so they they put us in touch with service providers in about five different countries just to have these initial conversations about, okay, so on the ground, when an undocumented person wants to get vaccinated, what are the things that could possibly get in their way? Um, and how could policies address those? So that's how we kind of came up with these categories. So the first thing is is quite obvious, is are there even any policies um, in place? Are, is there transparency around a country's vaccine policy? So that was our starting point. Like, can we find this information out or not? Obviously, our second big question was, are undocumented people um, included in these policies or not? And what we found out from our interviews with people is, is in a lot of countries, they don't even mention um, how undocumented people are going to be treated. And instead, service providers and undocumented people really have to read b- between the lines to figure out if they can get vaccinated. And that's, and that's how we came up with other categories. So if you think about it practically, if you're an undocumented person and you can't get vaccinated um, in a country, it might be because they require a national ID when you register. If you don't have a national ID, you can't register. Um, it might include things like, um, are there ways to register if you don't have internet access? Um, can you just make a phone call? That would be a big barrier. Um, so that's how we came up with the marginalized access category. And then finally, are there guarantees that if you do get vaccinated, that you won't get deported, for example, that you won't get reported to the authorities? So the last category we tried to measure was what privacy guarantees were in place. So as you can see, it was, vi- it was very much driven by how do we assess whether these policies are going to make it safe and secure for undocumented people to get vaccinated. Um, so just talk us through, you know, the process of this investigation and the scorecard. Like, where did you find the data in the first instance? And you know, you mentioned that you worked with this not-for-profit that's on the ground and working with with people directly. But, you know, how did you find collaborators? How did it come together? And what did this involve, basically? For me, this was actually, this is the first time I tried to do this kind of crowdsourced data project. Um, so I know, obviously, there's not official data um, on policies towards undocumented people. 
um, in the middle of the pandemic. So I knew we were going to need to recruit a team of researchers. So basically what I did was I called up Paul Bradshaw, who ran, you know, helped me investigate uh, through Birmingham University. So he's done a lot of uh, crowdsourcing of data projects. And then also Flor Coelho, um, she works at La Nación Data Team in Argentina, and they've done a lot of really big groundbreaking and data investigations that they help crowds that they use crowdsourcing for data collection. I talked to them first and kind of designed the project based on their experience and their advice. A lot of Paul's data journalism students actually ended up volunteering to be researchers. Um, and the rest of the researchers, so we had one researcher for each European country. So they were mostly Paul's students, or we drew, we drew them from the Lighthouse Reports uh, network. Um, and so once we recruited our base of volunteers, we had an online orientation session where we explained the overall objectives of the project. We took them through the structure of the scorecard, so our different categories and our different questions under the categories. Um, and then basically what we required was after the orientation session, everybody had about a week to gather relevant documents. So all the researchers looked for what are my country's official vaccination policies? What statements have they made in the media? Where's the registration page for the vaccine? And in a Google Sheets, um, we gathered all of these documents, all the references, and they identified which of the documents were going to help them answer the questions in our research survey. Um, so once we had our documents, then we basically brought everybody together again for a scoring sprint. Um, and we had a Google forum that Ted helped us build for the researchers to go through question by question, look through the original source documents, identify the answers, put in the correct citations, and then provide any explanation for how they arrived at the answer. Um, once all our researchers were finished, this took us longer than we anticipated. It probably took twice as long um, as we thought it would. Then we went back and did a lot of data cleaning. Um, and we learned, we learned kind of the hard way that, you know, some of the questions we had asked were much too specific that really no country um, could answer very, very specific questions um, about certain issues like, you know, what, what type of incarcerated populations could get vaccinated, for example. Um, other questions were a little bit too broad and different researchers interpreted them in different ways. Um, so after that, we went through about a month or two of cleaning um, of the data, um, organizing the spreadsheets before uh, we were able to turn it over to TET for processing. And I wonder, like, working with these different researchers, why do you think it took so long? Was it because they were volunteers or just because you're crowdsourcing data and it's quite hard to figure out how long this is going to take, right? Yeah, I think one of our big lessons learned is probably there should have, we, first of all, we should have run through the process um, with a couple of researchers from start to finish. Um, and then we probably could have eliminated some of these questions that were either not relevant or researchers were not able to answer. And again, for most of our researchers didn't necessarily have a specific background in covering migration issues or in sort of the specific policy work. Most of them had more of a general either data journalism background. So probably uh, going a little bit more thoroughly through the research, identifying more potential places where we could find the research um, would have sped up the process because what we had to do 
in many cases is, you know, if, for example, a researcher was not able to find any documents related to marginalized access for the vaccine, we had to go back later and find more research um, and more policy documents um, that might apply and help answer those questions. So there was like we had to repeat the process quite a few times until we were um, happy with the completeness of our research. And as we're going to explain later, uh, when we talk about the results, we st it still wasn't complete. There was still quite a lot. There were quite a lot of gaps um, in our research and in our data. Um, so talk to us, yeah, about the actual results of the scorecard. Are there any countries who are truly leading the way here? Or are there others that really need to improve and be more transparent? So um, what we found is actually the countries that are doing very well scoring the highest on our scorecard, so had a positive result across all of our uh, five categories were only the United Kingdom and Portugal. So only the United Kingdom and Portugal had clear and transparent policies. Um, they were fairly friendly um, towards undocumented people. Um, they were also friendly in terms of access to marginalized groups in general. Their ID requirements were clear and they also had uh, clear privacy policies. So of all the European countries, it, for us, it was surprising that there were only two that scored sort of unequivocally positively. Um, and then on the other extreme, uh, we had a couple of countries that just scored very badly. Um, so these are countries like Poland and Czech Republic that explicitly said they would not be vaccinating undocumented people. Uh, they would require IDs. Um, they would not. Um, make the vaccine free to anyone not within their, you know, without citizenship in their countries. So it was very clear that the couple of countries were just um, very exclusionary. But I think for us, the, the big surprise and where the real news story is, is just how vague most countries are in their policies. And I think, as I mentioned, what that comes from is this recognition from politicians that even if you have sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, if you actually build that into your policies, you're going to have, you're basically posing a fairly large public health risk. Because if undocumented people do um, have high rates of coronavirus and infect um, everyone else in the country, that's obviously not um, a good public health outcome. So for us, the, the big surprise was a lot of countries simply didn't directly address those issues. Uh, and left it up to, you know, the interpretation of of different people implementing rollout policies, um, NGOs that were trying to get vaccines out. Um, and it just, the scorecard raises this really big question of whether countries, are they following good politics or good policy? Right. Um, we just have a couple of follow-up questions in the general chat. Uh, how many countries did you manage to cover through the volunteers? Is the finalized spreadsheet accessible and open to the public? I guess we're going to get to that second one last. But yeah, how many countries did you manage to cover through the volunteers from Simona? I think we had between 22 and 24 countries. So we, we eliminated countries for a couple of different reasons. So our initial list was longer um, because we had, again, we had the original round of researchers where everybody um, kind of came to the sprint. 
Some of those researchers were not able to do follow-up research, so felt doing the cleaning process. In some cases on our team, we had people who spoke those languages, but if we didn't have anyone who spoke those languages, we had to eliminate the country uh, because our data wasn't complete. Um, and then Ted, I think, can explain to you a little bit more about uh, a couple of countries we eliminated because of the incompleteness of our research. Uh, yeah. When we have the data, we have 21 countries, and um, eventually we settled on the 18 countries and removed three countries because of a lot of um, unknowns in the responses that we get. We have um, 23 questions that try to measure the, the, the vaccination policies. And among them, uh, some of them can come back unknown because their policies are not publicly available and not open. So if we have too many unknowns for a particular country, we decide that not to do analysis and make judgments on that because we just don't have enough information for those. Um, those are three countries that were removed, and we eventually end up with um, 18 countries in total. Another question, Ava, um, is in the general chat. Francesco asks, did you take into account that there are countries where the healthcare is managed by regions and not by a national government? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And we actually had to go back um, and redo our research uh, for Spain, specifically for Spain and Italy, where we ran into that issue. Um, so yeah, d both Spain and Italy are highly decentralized. So we had the debate, basically, uh, do we go for sub-regional policies or do we stick with uh, national level policies? And what we realized was with the resources we have, um, we weren't able to get into the sub-national level. So we we went back and looked for any policy documents that did give some kind of national guidance. And then we also, what we did was we include, um, and if you check this out on the scorecard, you can see we included expert interviews for all countries in which we specifically ask experts to tell us um, whether there are broad regional differences because of decentralization that we should keep in mind. And as part of this project, we're also doing case studies. So we're doing country-specific investigations um, in which we highlight uh, sort of strong good practices, bad practices. And we are going to have a case study both for Spain and for Italy to help explain you know, what happens in these sort of decentralized contexts uh, where what's, yeah, basically where, you know, implementation varies very, varies very widely. Yeah, I mean, I just find it really interesting that the UK was so fair and friendly just because the rhetoric around immigration can is when you are in the UK, it can be quite polarizing. And, and so that that was really interesting uh, to see that. And yeah, I just wondered if you could talk to us about some of the missing data and the holes in the data, you know, maybe some of it didn't make sense to you or you guys struggled with. Um, yeah, for the missing data. Do we have missing data? It, uh, I would say yes and no. So what we did was there are what we could potentially label missing data, but we had a way to handle this missing data from the from the very beginning. We were able to use the missing data as part of the interpretation um, instead of discarding them or transforming them into something um, artificial. 
So what we had is um, when we when an answer to the data collection question is not definitive. So we have a question and we go up through the research and we can't find a specific answer. So there's no publicly available specific answer to this question. The answer to that question will be reported as um, unknown. So unknown is one of the four options to the data collection question, which are yes, no, not applicable, and unknown. So you know, unknown is technically a uh, data that we cannot find or collect. So you can consider that to be missing data, but it does have uh, meaning into our study. Uh, a country with a lot of unknowns corresponds to being not so open about their policies. So we use this concept to, to do two things. The first one is, earlier I said there were three countries removed from the study because uh, they don't have uh, enough information. So we use the number of unknowns to find these countries. Um, another one is you will see that if you go to our website that we launched yesterday, you'll find a lot of countries uh, that are labeled confused in uh, total score or other categories. These are countries with a lot of unknowns to their responses. So essentially they're not very specific and open about um, these areas publicly. And we, we use that as a way to identify countries who need to do better in terms of communicating to the public. So in terms of uh, making sense of the data, from, from purely from the data perspective, uh, we made sure that the data we collected is um, internally consistent. So it's, you know, it's not measuring different things. Uh, we want to make sure that within a category, um, we measure the same thing and the, the, that same thing is what we want to, what we intend to measure. So we have several um, tests that we run, statistical tests from different angles to identify any of these potential contradictions. The data is found to be um, really internally consistent. And um, we have the GitHub repository completely open source. So uh, there is all the details of the approaches that we use and the findings about these consistency checks to make sure that the data is um, internally consistent and makes sense overall. Right. And just going back to the findings, I just wonder, you know, what were some of the general trends policy-wise that the data revealed regionally across Europe or nationally or locally? One thing I found surprising kind of uniformly is how risk adverse uh, policies are. So across Europe, countries tended to be more transparent about around issues that are considered uncontroversial. So for example, it was pretty easy to find most countries' ID policies, uh, residency policies, privacy policies, because these are kind of politically low risk. But as soon as it came into anything that might cause some sort of populist backlash, so issues like not only like whether undocumented people would have access, whether the vaccine would be free for them, um, whether they had the same choices of vaccine, but also even more broader than that, like whether there would be mobile vaccine vaccination centers available, whether people who are incarcerated would be able to be vaccinated. 
all of these countries that are that you think of as fairly progressive um, were fairly silent on these issues. So, for example, uh, Germany that you think of as a fairly, you know, having a fairly robust social welfare state, it was very, very difficult um, to evaluate um, how well they're taking care of these more vulnerable uh, people in society. Um, and we know that in some places, it's actually probably a, a more positive story than we, than we expect. So Belgium, um, which is pretty, um, you know, it scores a little bit negatively, um, looks fairly hostile to undocumented people. Um, it's one of those countries with a pretty decentralized approach. And from the pe- the places um, that we've talked to so far, so groups providing services, there's actually a very robust program, for example, in Brussels to vaccinate undocumented people. So yeah, I think the good news is that in some countries that even though they're not saying so on poli- in their policies or on paper, there actually, there is an on the ground effort um, to vaccinate undocumented people. And what we hope um, to see is this would be the beginning of, you know, opening up a little bit more towards the idea of providing health care um, to undocumented people, you know, not in the pandemic context. Right. Um, and I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the documentation process and you know, building this data and GitHub. Why is it important, I guess, you know, and let's talk a little bit as well about why it's important for data journalists to work with data scientists. So Ava, you're a data journalist. Ted, you're a data scientist. Why does this matter? and Why is it important? In terms of the GitHub and all, um, the purpose of a GitHub repository, you can make it private, but public repository is to create an open and transparent data project and um, to invite interest and further development, people can develop other analysis, use this data to include in their own projects. um, So they can develop further based on the work we have done. And of course, we would like to invite everyone interested to explore our repository and improve upon it. And any feedback would be would be greatly helpful to the project as well. So if you go look at the GitHub repository, um, we have all the raw data. So I think this would answer one of the questions earlier. Um, we do have the raw data in there. And uh, things like the reference documents that are being used to justify these answers, um, the researchers are found. Um, so it's a whole list of all the different documents from all the countries. There is a folder for all the data that we have already processed. So if you're just interested in using the data, you can just go directly to that um, folder as well. And if you go there, you will also see a kind of how to use uh, where where different things are. So different folders, where to find different things in that folders. And uh, some of the things that we mentioned that I mentioned earlier, like statistical tests and approaches that we use, they're all in there. So, uh, you know, all the details are on the GitHub repository if you want to go check that out. So in terms of the documenting the the project, um, we have prepared detailed codebooks for the data sets that we use. So codebooks are essentially um, explanation for different columns in the data table when we, when we go to in there and look at it. 
um, their installation guides. So if you would like to run some of the scripts that um, I have written, you can also do that, uh, clone the repository on your laptop and install things and run that. It, it's all in there. There are methodology explanations, so um, very detailed and technical uh, methodology on the data processing steps, uh, some of the tests that we run, and some of the analysis that we did. It's important to make sure that the, the data that we collected passes certain statistical tests so we can be certain that our analysis and the conclusions that we draw are valid in every way, right? And also documenting every detail um, through the Jupyter Notebook and open source code is really important uh, for transparency and for reproducibility. Other people can reproduce the stuff that we did. And it, it's, uh, it's something that everyone do it, but it's, it's usually beneficial to have someone who, who is used to handling data and communicating through, through the data is, is ideal. Right. And Ava, I mean, you and I were talking about this before of what a luxury it is to work with a data scientist in a newsroom because it almost seems like a rare thing now. I don't know, maybe that was 10 years ago, that was quite normal, but as data journalists have, more of them have become, come into the field, it seems like that's, it's really quite a luxury for you. Yeah, I think for me, it serves two purposes to, to work with a data scientist on these kind of evergreen projects. Um, one, of course, is you get multiple stories and multiple outlets, but I think it's also a way to get sort of better beat reporting and more in-depth um, data literacy among your audiences if they get used to reading um, stories that are more, you know, driven on data, you know, on, on data science and on more analytical reporting and if they, they get used to reading these stories regularly. So, for example, with this project, not only are we hoping to update it with you know new policies in four months, but we also would hopefully be able to use this this framework that we've built to cover you know other data issues that are relevant to my you know migrant communities, so that we can use this framework and apply it um, to other you know reporting um, contexts. Because the reality is, it's not economically viable to have a one-off project with a data scientist for a single story for a single outlet. And I think that's the, the reality that media houses are, are facing and their best option really is to join these collaborative projects so that we can leverage our resources um, and do data projects together. From what I understand, Ava, some of the people you've been talking to, like I know you're talking to a journalist in Ireland, you're talking, you, you mentioned Greece and Portugal, these two investigations. Are these data journalists or these journalists just with a specialism in immigration or an interest in immigration? Like, how have their data skills been and how much educating have you been doing to bring them on board? That's a great question. So we, we're trying to be as inclusive as possible. So, um, for example, in, in Portugal, we have a team that's both a, a data journalist and a migration reporter, which is great. Uh, because again, we can have, you know, the migration reporter doing really, she's doing a, a feature length uh, case study, really focusing on the undocumented experience, while the data journalist can do a deeper dive into the individual policies in Portugal that are encouraging or discouraging people from getting vaccinated. 
but in other countries that they don't have a data journalist on staff, um, if you look at the website, you can basically embed, you can, you know, you can embed, just copy the embed link and use the visualizations that have been created. So we worked with TB, which is a, a data design company based in Myanmar to create these visualizations. And our, and our priority was basically, we want this data and the story to be accessible to newsrooms, whether or not they have a data journalist on staff. So a regular migration reporter will, you know, will onboard them, we'll give them a briefing, we'll discuss potential story angles in their country and whether the data supports or refutes their hypotheses. We help them with on-the-ground reporting as well. And then again, they can use the embeddable visualizations, whether it's the map or the individual scorecard results to enhance their reporting. But we don't want not having a data journalist on your team uh, to be a barrier to doing data reporting and to improving migration coverage in your newsroom. Marvelous. Now, if journalists here uh, listening in today, if they want to take advantage of this data and write a story about it or dig deeper into a certain country or region, what's your advice? Like, or do you want them to reach out to you? Should they just have a look and read up on it and then get in touch with Lighthouse Reports? Because I know this is part of the project. It's an open source project where you really want people in different European countries, journalists, to to write about what you've found and, and dig deeper even. So, like you said, we really, really welcome collaboration. And yeah, what we'd love is for you to take a look at the website, take a look at your country's results. If you have some initial ideas, because again, what we... <laughs> What we can't provide is we don't know what to dig into in specific countries, right? We don't know, you know, what policy is suspicious in your country or what is worth investigating. So for us, the most exciting thing has been being approached by journalists who've taken a look at the results, um, have questions about the data, and then we have a conversation about what's a potential angle uh, for your story. Um, we'll go over the data. We could even help you pitch it with your editors. Um, we have small grants to support journalists, especially freelancers, uh, to get these stories in their media outlets. Um, so again, yeah, your basic, your best bet is take a look at the website, review the results, um, and then get in touch with us, and we can discuss potential story angles um, and how you can make best use of this data for your audience. Brilliant. Um, and we did have a question in the general chat. Uh, Andrea asks. What are the challenges of working with a data expert, if there are any, smiley face? <laughs> um, yeah, so in terms of background, I have I have been in several different IT fields. Um, I worked as a so, uh, software developer, cloud administration, and I did a lot of work in the uh, machine learning. Um, but in terms of talking and communicating these uh, data-related concepts. Um, I had experience talking to um, a lot of different people. Um, I was so fortunate enough to be in a position to be forced to talk to people from different backgrounds. So I did have a um, decent amount of experience talking to um, people from different backgrounds. And um, also, when um, if you are look looking to, if you're a data scientist and looking to work in a data journalism world, um, it, is, um, it is beneficial to think of yourself as a journalist. Even though I don't have any <laughs> experience with journalism, 
it's beneficial to think of yourself as a journalist with uh, who happens to have experience in the data science. Because um, at the end of the day, the end goal is to create a good story. And um, you can't create a good story if you don't think like a journalist. Um, so this is a, a also an area where I would be looking to improve um, for myself. But um, as a data scientist, most of my work is to um, support a bigger project, bigger goal. So I tend to try to think um, in terms of the domain and the context and try to translate my work into the vocabulary that you know the people in the domain use uses generally. Right. Um, we have a question here uh, in the general chat from Francesco. How did you process answers to your questionnaire? Did you know how reliable respondents and acted accordingly, or are you assuming that all responses were created equal? Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, this was this the data cleaning process was quite intensive, and I, as I mentioned, we have uh, Francesca Pierre on our on the call, our project manager, and. She actually led uh, the data cleaning and verification effort. So basically, for every single question, <laughs> we for the question, we had an answer. And then we had a reference code to the original source document where the answer came from, a quote from that source document in the original language, the English translation of the quote, and then a comment explaining how that uh, quote was relevant to answering the question. Um, so for every single question, Francesca went back um, and retraced these steps. So she went and opened the original document. She found the original quote, determined whether or not, in fact, it was sufficient for answering the question. If it wasn't, um, we left a note for the researcher to please go back and find um, a more valid document that was more pertinent to that question. If if the researchers was not able to and we were not able to, um, then we changed the answer to unknown. Um, and all of this, this whole process, as Tet mentioned, can be retraced on GitHub. Um, if you go to the website, we, we, we explained it for the Portugal case. So if you go to our scorecard results and you click on any of the countries and you click on the explainer article, we retrace how we did this process for you. But we, what we do is we encourage everybody when they use the data, you're more than welcome to do this exact same process. So take a look at the question, at the answer that we provided, um, go look for the original source document, check out the quote. Um, again, this process was not perfect. So there was quite a lot um, of going back and finding more relevant documents and up, updating the answers and fine tuning the questions. So. Yeah, it was quite a, a cyclical process that required a lot of checking and rechecking. And of course, policies change very quickly. Um, so this data is only updated through, depending on the country, but basically through July. Um, so we would have to, you know, as countries improve their policies, if there is enough interest from journalists to do another round, we would have to go through and update our answers and do sort of a version two with updated policies. Um, and back to Ted, I just wonder if you could dig deeper into sort of the data process, you know, for handling the story. Were there 
certain challenges with gathering and cleaning it and writing the documentation that you may want to talk about? Um, yeah, much of the data work is teamwork. Um, I am the writing the I am writing the code that you see on a GitHub, but the ideas and concepts all come from the whole team. So in terms of data gathering, as um, Eva also mentioned, it was uh, it was a very long and arduous process. Um, it's a challenging because uh, it requires us to constantly reassess our assumptions and understanding. Um, but it's also an enjoyable part because when things come together and becomes coherent, um, it's, it can be quite rewarding. I could just give you a concrete example of what Ted's talking about. This, this is probably one of the most absurd conversations we had during the, the process, but we had a big debate on what everyone means because we were trying to figure out, determine whether language was inclusive of undocumented people. So we had a debate about how to categorize, you know, if a policy says everyone in the country can get vaccinated, does everyone mean everyone, including undocumented people? Does it need to say everyone residing in the country independent of their migration status? If it says residence, does residence mean legal residence or not legal residence? So you know, I think people people assume that data is black and white. And I in what we found out, there are quite a lot of shades of gray. So we had to make value judgments um, like that. And in that case, we did determine that, you know, inclusive language did specifically have to say something like everyone in the country independent of legal status or, you know, you know, independent of whether, you know, they had, you know, a, a residency permit to be there. Um, but yeah, it was these kind of back and forth conversations that I think really bring up the ambiguities in data and why it's so important to have, you know, a multidisciplinary team uh, to talk through these decisions together. Absolutely. Um, and I guess just looking back on on this, I mean, I know that this is still ongoing and you're still working with people, but what were some of the challenges you found from this and what, what are the takeaways and learnings if you were to kind of do this similar cross-border crowdsourced investigation again? Um, I think, you know, for me, this and this is, was advice we got from the beginning was, yeah, just doing a lot of prep work and understanding the issue really well before you begin data collection um, was a huge lesson learned for me. Um, so again, we had to like go back and redo a lot of research and fine tune the questionnaire. So um, I think having a really solid, well-researched methodology from the beginning um, and making sure that, you know, all of if, if it's crowdsourced, that all volunteers have adequate resources and adequate training um, to be able to do the, the, the research phase um, consistently. Um, across the group is is really important. So I think those would be improvements um, I would make. And I would also, I think, include um, the migration reporters that we're going to work with earlier on in the process, because now as we're reaching out to migration reporters in different newsrooms, they also have a lot of insights um, into what angles they would like to report in. And again, in retrospect, I think we would have um, incorporated some of those angles, but we were we focused pretty exclusively on what the barriers were for undocumented people 
Um, but it's also important to keep in mind that, you know, migration stories are a very hard sell for newsrooms um, across Europe. And, you know, my, the few migration reporters that are out there really have to fight to get their stories in the media. Um, so anything we can do to make sure that they have a story that they can sell to their editors and that is compelling for their audiences, I think, including their perspective from the beginning is very important. Um, for me, I, I agree with all the having a very strong methodology from the beginning. And as as you do it, um, one thing that to be very sure is what you are trying to measure at the end, um, because that if you don't have a very clear idea of what you're trying to measure at the end, you can start out with a lot of different little things and they would go in different directions as you move forward. And you'll realize that you need to pull them back together. Um, so yeah, have a very clear idea of what we're trying to measure and strong methodology. You guys mentioned there were 18 countries um, that you went with in the end. You you also mentioned that you've got investigations coming out for Greece and uh, Portugal. Um, but what other countries are coming out and what countries are you missing where you need some more reporters from different countries to focus on? Yep. So we are first, like you said, our first coming out are Publico in Portugal are publishing this weekend. In Greece, we're running t tomorrow. Um, we also have investigations coming out in Spain. Um, we are going to have a case study in Ireland and Germany. Um, what we're looking for um, from the network is specifically any reporters. <laughs> this is this is a very hard time to get the interest of a Polish migration reporter. <laughs> they obviously have other pressing uh, issues to cover uh, on the border. But yeah, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, we're definitely interested in those. Um, Belgium, we th we think we have a reporter from NAC who's going to cover, again, how even vague policies can conceal what's actually a very robust uh, migration policy. But again, we're, like I said, we don't actually know what the stories are in a lot of these countries. All we have is the policy data. So we're open to pitches from any of the countries we covered. And um, for us, yeah, really, the goal is to bring out um, different countries' best and worst practices so that we can tell sort of a more cohesive and coherent story about why it's important to address undocumented healthcare needs both in and outside the context of the pandemic. And I just wondered, Ava, what your final thoughts were on, like, why is it, you mentioned that, um, you know, immigration, it's, it's just a hard sell for some reason um, in newsrooms, but yet it's such an important topic and it does affect locals because people are married to people of different nationalities and they're going through the immigration process. And I just wonder why, why is that an issue? And why, why aren't more newsrooms kind of putting their resources towards immigration? And what we see is, yeah, covering in the age of populism, even media houses are, are sort of shying away from covering issues that are regarded as too, too leftist or too extreme and you know they're staying very much in the middle but i feel like it as the eu is trying to make the case for you know better more cohesive policies whether it's on migration issues whether it's on um you know industrial farming which is another big issue that um, lighthouse reports is covering or pushbacks i think it's really important for the public to develop sort of uh a data-driven 
basic agreed upon understanding of what are actually the underlying issues and kind of avoid the polarization that's happening in a lot of media. And I think doing these bigger data projects that have more in-depth explanatory reporting on structural um, issues that are holding back development are really, really important um, to raise audiences level of understanding of these issues and kind of pull the tension back from a lot of the really populist um, isolating rhetoric that we see in a lot of uh, media across uh, Europe. Um, and finally, um, I just wonder wh where can people go to read these stories? Are they going to be on Lighthouse Reports? Or are they going to be on other publications? Um, you mentioned Publico for Portugal. Um, yeah, how can we follow what's happening? Apart from following the Conversations with Data newsletter that's coming out next week with this edited version. So on the website, I published as soon as the first investigation comes out tomorrow, there'll be an investigations tab. Um, for now, they're all coming out in local languages, but in some countries we have partners, for example, Reporters United in Greece is going to be translating um, the Greek story into English. So we'll also, in some cases, be publishing um, English versions, but we're definitely going to have a centralized uh, home there for, for all of the investigations. So you can keep your eye on that. And again, we're having two or three investigations come up in the next week and a half. And then, you know, every two weeks, we expect to have another couple of investigations, basically, until um, all the stories that we find to tell have been told. Marvelous. Um, well, thank you so much, Ava and Tet, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. It was really interesting to hear about this. This is a topic that I think is close to a lot of our hearts. It's just so interesting. And I, I love hearing about these crowdsourced cross-border investigations. So thank you all for joining us today. And um, it was a real pleasure, Ava and Tet. Thank you for your time and for sharing everything. And guys, please get in touch with Ava and Francesca to follow up and write those amazing immigration data stories that we need. <laughs> Thanks, Tara, and looking forward to hearing all of your great story ideas. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.